Welcome to the Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Fred Barnes is here to talk about Steve Bannon, the man and the mythmaker. And then Michael Warren's coming by to tell us what happens next in the Republican push for tax cuts and tax reform. All that coming up on the Confab. To get the Confab going in earnest, we have Mr. Fred Barnes, executive editor of the Weekly Standard, with us right here in the Confab studio. Mm. Welcome, Fred. If nothing else, I am earnest. (laughs) You're writing earnestly about Steve Bannon this week. Yep. Mm -hmm. Steve Bannon, the one-time presidential advisor, Mm -hmm. uh, provocateur, media magnate, and uh, and man who would reform the GOP. He would. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you write about how he's been telling audiences that Republicans were way behind until he came on board <laughs> yeah. in Trump's election. That's the uh, gist of what he's done, particularly in this speech to uh, California Republicans uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, I mean, the numbers he cited uh, for Trump being behind when he arrived on August 16. Uh, 2016, and was the CEO of the campaign for the next three months up until Election Day. Uh, I mean, he's no, no, poor old Trump was so far behind, you know, it's a wonder he even stayed in the race. And sure enough, after three months of Bannon leadership, he wins the presidency. And is that the way it actually played out? <laughs> well, his numbers are all hyped up, Bannon's numbers. You know, he says, oh, they were 16 points behind when, when of course, it was about about six points behind or seven points behind in August and so on. It's all, you know, these numbers are inflated and and it, it, by Bannon uh, uh, to make himself look better. But, but my favorite moment in his speech was when he talked about how Trump had won Florida, Iowa, Ohio, and one other state and that no other president had done that in living memory when, in fact, most of them have, have done it. If you're it a Republican, if memory. you're going to win, yeah. you've got to run those states. Yeah, of course. And uh, Reagan won them twice. Even uh, George W. Bush won in 2004. Nixon, of course, did when he won 49 states. And the one he didn't win was not Iowa. It was Massachusetts. So he did it, too. It's, it's quite common. So how much impact did Bannon have on the Trump campaign and on the Republican prospects in 2016 in general? Well, he had some impact. I mean, he was an improvement uh, over Paul Manafort, for sure. That's what he replaced as a campaign chairman. Uh, and, and heaven knows Bannon is a fascinating guy with an interesting background. You know, he was in the Navy, worked for Goldman Sachs, and... And he worked in Hollywood, and he opened an investment company, and he did all these things, and and uh, and now he's uh, in politics. He's one of the most interesting people in politics, but he didn't—he was not indispensable to the Trump campaign. Trump was, and one other person was, and that's Mitch McConnell, who is the arch enemy of Steve Bannon, the foil, the foil. He he, you know, Bannon's going around recruiting. Uh, candidates to be challengers of incumbent Republicans in the primaries uh, next year, 2018. And, you know, he he can't get a particularly good crop because, 
you know, generally, those people have already been elected. They're the incumbents, the people he wants to drive out. So he's gotten some Lulus, and, uh, but he can offer them things. He can offer them money from big donors and, uh, and, and, and lots of other things. And, and just the uh, uh, imprimatur of Steve Bannon is worth something. I mean, he's become, I think, uh, wrongly this mythical figure in the Republican Party. Uh, and, and it's partly uh, because he sold himself as the guy who elected uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and, and look, he, may, he helped make Trump a, a more disciplined candidate than he had been. Uh, now, maybe that would have happened with Trump anyway. But, you know, Bannon was the CEO and he, and he gets some credit. But he was not indispensable, and he's not a magic man. He's not a political genius, but he is a very interesting person. You make the uh, case in your article in the Weekly Standard this week that if anyone was essential to Donald Trump's election, mm-hmm. it was Mitch McConnell. Oddly enough, <laughs> that's true. And, and the reason being that McConnell, if you go back to January in 2016, when Justice uh, Nino Scalia of the Supreme Court uh, died suddenly at a hunting farm or a hunting uh, lodge in, in Texas, the first reaction of the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was to say, we are not going to have a nominee uh, uh, to the Supreme Court taken up during this final year of Barack Obama's presidency. And of course, Democrats went bonkers and they'd have done the same thing if the roles were reversed. And in other words, he kept that seat open. And I'll, I'll give Trump credit for doing something very smart. He came up with a list uh, or the idea of a list of conservatives, judges, jurists, lawyers, law professors, but all conservatives from which he would pick a nominee to fill Scalia's seat. Now, Eric, you know, and I know because of many members in my own family, uh, that this was the thing that got them to vote for Donald Trump. There were so many Republicans, conservatives, uh, who just... You know, Donald Trump was not their cup of tea. They didn't like uh, the way he spoke. They didn't like anything about him, really, except that he was uh, someone who would nominate for the Supreme Court a conservative, and he guaranteed that he would. That made them vote for Trump. I bet you know people who uh, uh, are in that category. I know many of them. Right, and so you had this referendum on the Supreme Court that would not have happened had it not been for Mitch McConnell refusing to fill the empty spot, making that empty spot and who was going to fill it mm-hmm. the premier issue in the election. I think you're right. And, uh, and you know, most people uh, who are not liberal Democrats are going to think, uh, do I want Hillary to fill this and create a solid liberal majority on the court? Or do I want uh, Donald Trump, who has this list? You know, we've seen the names and so on. He's going to pick from it. And he did, of course, pick Neil Gorsuch eventually. Uh, Certainly a rock-solid conservative and very genial and smart man. A great witness when he was before the Senate Judiciary Committee, too, which matters. Um, uh, It was just a pivotal issue for so many people uh, everywhere. Uh, I don't think Trump could possibly have won uh, without this really feat of political strength uh, uh, by Mitch McConnell. So Mitch McConnell is also in the business of trying to pick candidates mm-hmm. to run for the Senate and to intervene in in 
primary elections yeah. in the same way that that Steve Bannon, but on the opposite yeah. side of things, is mm-hmm. who's who's going to have better luck fielding candidates in primaries? Well, I think uh, I, I I really think that. Uh, McConnell is, and he has a record of doing this. If, if you go back, uh, you'll remember, go back to in 2010, that was the great uh, Tea Party election where Republicans won the House. And they thought, boy, we're going to grab the Senate in, in 2012. And they nominated in, in a number of states some Lulus of candidates who lost. And the, the McConnell was embarrassed. He was then merely the Republican leader. He wasn't the majority leader in the Senate, and he decided that I'm look. I'm going to intervene in these in these, and, and I'm going to get. I'm going to look for candidates who are Republicans, obviously, uh, who can win the general election, not just the primary. And lo and behold, in the next election, 2014. Nine Republicans won seats, and Republicans won the majority, and as luck would have it, someone new became majority leader, and, that's, and that was Mitch McConnell. But intervening uh, from his position as the Republican leader in the Senate it w- was something new. He'd always been against that, but he changed his mind with great success. It's a measure of just how bad Republicans did in 2012 that when you look at 2018, which is the next— Senate cycle mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. on the schedule that the 2012 mm-hmm. election was that there are all sorts of Democrats up for re-election in seats that should be Republican seats, yeah. which is just a measure of how many Democrats were up against wacky fringe <laughs> candidates <laughs> yeah. six years ago. Yeah, you know, even a Democrat uh, uh, could beat uh, Bozo the Clown uh, for a Senate <laughs> seat in a Republican district. What's your prediction for the Senate? going this next year? Well, you know, there's uh, the Senate and Donald Trump are uh, at, at odds on a lot of things. And of course, Bob Corker in Tennessee and and Jeff Flake in Arizona are retiring. Arizona, that means they uh, can nominate somebody who, who probably would have a better chance of winning than Jeff Flake would. In Tennessee, Tennessee has become such a Republican state that they'll probably hold that. Um, but a lot can happen. You know, one thing I've learned after about 40 years of uh, following the Senate and the House elections is uh, you don't really know what's going to happen. You really don't have a, a solid feel for it until just a, a month or two or three before the election. You know, you think you know. I've, I now ignore all these stories about Republicans will win the House or hold the House in 2018 or Democrats will win the Senate in 2018. That's a waste of time. Don't read those. I, I recommend to all, all, all people who are interested in politics to not read those stories. Wait a year. Okay. Well, I'm not reading them as of now. So, Fred Barnes, thanks for joining us on the Confab. I enjoyed it. Now joining us on the Confab, Mr. Michael Warren, White House correspondent of the Weekly Standard and author of the essential daily newsletter, White House Watch, which you can get by going to weeklystandard.com. Michael Warren, welcome to the Confab. How's it going? uh, It's great. Thanks for having me, Eric. So the big news legislatively this week came in the passage of a budget this, well, this may be kind of boring nuts and bolts stuff, but the passage of the budget had big implications for tax reform. Yeah, but I have to stop you, Eric, because it's not it's as it as it often is in Washington. It's 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 not really a budget. It's like uh, what they call a budget blueprint. Um, 
uh, because that's the way things work in Washington now. Nobody ever actually passes a budget anymore. You just pass a budget blueprint, um, which uh, essentially um, in, in this kind of arcane legislative speak that I don't even try to understand, uh, it clears the deck. Um, I pick up on the jargon, at least. It clears the deck for tax reform. It essentially is a stopgap for uh, funding the government that gives Republicans a chance uh, to pass their tax reform uh, proposal, whenever that's coming, uh, through uh, uh, through a process that that they can just get a simple majority in the Senate and, and the House. So the reconciliation project, y- process. Y- yeah. So um, I, I don't better known I, as the budget reconciliation. Process. Exactly. So it's like it's all this complicated stuff, and the, the the top line is yes, they did pass a budget, but it's worth sort of making the point that none of this is normal (laughs) and uh, we should uh, at least stop to mention that. Right. A lot of these things, though, are procedural things that one has to happen for another to happen. And if it had not happened, if it had not passed, uh, the Republicans would be looking at another epic failure. Yes. Um, And and I I, I think there was a general idea within uh, Washington, that this was kind of perfunctory, that this was going to pass. Uh, you know, it passed the Senate last week, um, but it was it was not it was not a, a sure thing to pass the Senate. Of course, there's a small margin in the Senate for Republicans. Um, you know, uh, Rand Paul was um, ended up not voting for. It. There was some question of some of the other some of the more moderate Republicans, um, and well, but, and there seemed to be concern among high tax state Republicans. There are a few New Jersey, New uh, New York Republicans who are worried that this budget bill sets the path for a tax bill that is going to strip them of the deduction Did, for state and local taxes, right. which Republicans, I don't think, are crazy. Those who aren't in high state, high tax states, aren't crazy for saying, why should we be subsidizing the welfare states of places like New York and New Jersey. Right. Um, and this is, I mean, this is where, this is where again, the, the sort of procedural stuff gets complicated because what you're talking about is in a tax bill that we actually don't even it know. Doesn't it doesn't yet, exist right? yet. And this was a, uh, this was a uh, hurdle for Republicans to get over to pass a budget uh, but, but, but resolution. People like Peter King, Republican from New York, we're, we're worried that once you pass the budget bill, right. then procedurally what ends up happening is that puts all the cards in the hands of uh, the leadership. And it takes this may have been the last chance for those high-tax state Republicans to make a stand. That's right. And, and that's what actually put um, the House passage of what the Senate passed the previous week, uh, that the House passage of this budget uh, blueprint uh, in question. Made it a close run thing. Close run. In fact, it was uh, four votes was how it ended up. Now, you can say um, that essentially the, uh, uh, the the Speaker of the House knowing, uh, and, and the House Majority Leader and the House Whip team, knowing sort of what they needed to get, that there might have been some release for Go ahead and vote no, they say to the New York and New Jersey Republicans, because they need to make those votes no. Right. As so that, long as they aren't essential votes to get the majority. Right. But 
I mean, to me, this is sort of a uh, a small point that misses the bigger picture, which is that it's a narrow majority in the House, too. I mean, it's because it wasn't simply uh, uh, New York and other Northeast high tax states uh, that were objecting to this budget. Illinois, bill. Illinois, Pennsylvania. Interestingly, nobody from California. None of the there is a significant number of Republicans from California. Um it's uh, worth noting, of course, the majority, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy is from California. That may have something to do with it, but very interesting. That's another high-tax state. I think there's a, a sense in which the Republican areas of California, partly through gerrymandering, uh, partly through sort of being the stepchildren of California now, <laughs> now you know, are, are very conservative Republican districts. That's right. Even the overarching, uh, they're, they're conservative uh, viewpoints probably uh, outmatch any you know concerns about um, uh, 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 about this this issue of the of the uh, tax uh, deduction the state and local tax deduction. Um, but all that being said, uh, the other side of this, of course, is is also um, those uh, those in the Republican conference in the House uh, who are deficit hawks who worry about. Uh, tax reform that um, uh, that that could you know the, the the plan is to make it deficit neutral, but there's concern that uh, maybe it should be lowering the deficit. There's concern that uh, uh, perhaps uh, without the right amount of uh, growth, it could raise the deficit. So um, you had a few of those opposing the budget bill uh, or the budget resolution, whatever the heck we're calling it. But um, it, it, all of this underscores the fact that it is precarious in the House as well as in the Senate. Precarious, but. Perhaps looking at the big picture, um, one way to look at it is the divides that Donald Trump has brought about in the Republican Party make ever more precarious getting anything done. Or another way of looking at it that some other analysts have suggested is that tax reform, tax cutting is the one bit of glue that Republicans can used to bind themselves together and keep themselves as a party from falling apart entirely. And so in a way, the big Trump divides are giving impetus toward tax reform and tax cuts as the one thing that Republicans can hold themselves together with. Right. If we can't get along at all at Thanksgiving dinner, at least we can, you know, sit here and uh, and, and, and enjoy this football game. Uh, and we're going to sit here and we're going to smile about it. We're going to love it, damn it. Like, that's that's the kind of, uh, 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 this will be going on over Thanksgiving. Could even extend till after Christmas, but that's a, another discussion for another day. But yes, I think, you're, I think that analysis is correct. Here's the curveball in all of this. It's still uh, baseball season. <laughs> exactly. We're, I'm mixing all these metaphors here. Um, it, and that's the president. And, and, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. We heard earlier this week, well, and we actually heard this at the end of last week, a report that was coming out. Again, a tax bill, a tax reform plan, tax cuts that have not been released. We're, we're told November 1st is when we're going to actually see the plan. Um but it was leaked, it was revealed, it was uh, shown that uh, one of the other elements being bandied about uh, as a possible way to uh, raise revenue if there were going to be these tax cuts on um, on rates and cutting back on the business tax and all these sorts of things, one thing that uh, the Republicans, the House leadership and Senate leadership were considering was uh, uh, raise, or sorry, lowering the annual uh, uh, caps of what could be uh, devoted to a 401k pre-tax. Um, you know, the 401k 
pension fund is essentially a way, uh, actually underutilized uh, a way for uh, you to uh, put away money for retirement pre-tax. Uh, and what the Republicans were bandying about, again, not in anything that was a uh, definite plan, uh, was uh, essentially making um, uh, lowering that limit so that uh, any, I think it was something like $2,400, any um, contributions past that into your 401k would be taxed. Um, and there was some outrage for that because this is how a lot of middle class people save for retirement. They have their their uh, employers contribute to uh, their 401ks and they contribute to it uh, out of their uh, out of their paycheck. And uh, uh, and this seemed like uh, maybe not the greatest deal. And what did you hear from the president? Uh, you basically heard immediately from Trump saying, we're not going to do this. We're not going to touch 401ks. 401ks are great. Uh, he said this throughout the week that right. uh, we're not going to do anything with 401ks. I'm putting the kibosh on this plan. And that kind of uh, threw everybody on Capitol Hill for a loop. Uh, Although there is an instinct there, which is that, that Donald Trump does not want to appear to be driving tax reform and tax cuts as a vehicle for further enriching the rich. No, I, look, I think I think this is what I think. His Trump's instincts on this are absolutely correct. He has the he has a sort of a populist's ear for what is going to sell and what's not going to sell. And th- and I think this is a problem. The glue that holds a Republican party together as you were saying is this whole idea of cutting taxes in a way to spur growth and and all that sort of thing. But it's not necessarily clear that that's popular. Um, and it's particularly not popular uh, necessarily without somebody who's going to sell it, somebody like a, uh, you may have heard of him, Ronald Reagan, uh, to sell tax cuts as a, you know, a boon to the middle class. And, and what I sort of see on the horizon here, and I think what a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill fear is that um, uh, when these ideas come out, uh, certainly when the plan comes out on November 1st, um, that... The president is going to, who has an ear for what's going to be popular or not popular, is going to see provisions in it and say, and do what he said about the 401k uh, proposal and say, yeah, we're not going to do that. Where that's off the negotiating table. Um, it's notable that Kevin Brady, Orrin Hatch, these are the the House and Senate uh, Tax Writing Committee chairs, basically said, no, those are still on the negotiating table. The 401k. Uh, uh, proposal and the SALT, the state and local tax deduction, uh, things are still on the table. So I think that uh, in a way, yes, this is the one thing that Republicans can unite around, tax reform, until, if and until the president himself uh, blows it up. And I think it blows it up in a way that's got to be popular. Michael Warren, keep us up to date on this story. We'll be watching White House Watch at weeklystandard.com. And of course, here at the Confab and the other Weekly Standard podcasts. It's going to be going on for maybe a lot longer than we think. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. That's it for the Confab this week. Be sure to tune into the Confab every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.